Children's Church. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's page 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 19 today. Genesis 1. Follow along as we read verses 1 through 19. This is the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. May God give us ears to hear his word. In 1971, John Lennon, one of the founding members of the Beatles, recorded a song somewhat on a whim uh, that has gone on to profoundly impact our world. This song has been included in dozens of movies. It's been used in countless commercials. It went on to turn a profit of over $25 million, and it became John Lennon's biggest number one hit. Anybody know the song I'm talking about? Wow, I'm, I'm impressed. Yes, it's the song Imagine. In this song, John Lennon encourages us to do this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Now John Lennon's famous song celebrates what could be described as practical atheism. Practical atheism. And in his view of practical atheism, the world is filled with rainbows and flowers, with smiling, happy people, people living in peace and harmony. 
Now, sadly and ironically, John Lennon was murdered less than a decade later. He was shot in the streets of New York City by a 25-year-old psychotic named Mark David Chaplin. And John Lennon was only 40 years old. Now, I want to do something now that's similar to what John Lennon did in his song, and yet I want us to be far more realistic, far more honest, far more frank. Forget the melodious music for the time being and try to imagine life without God. Obviously, this is not what we believe and teach here at Trinity. We do believe in a God. But just for the sake of argument, believe that everything you've ever heard about God, the Bible, the Gospel, Jesus, it's all a lie and none of that exists. Well, since there is no God, all you see around you is really just an accident. The universe, everything in it, it was just the accidental collision of stardust and molecules coming together. This planet we live on, the sun that gives us light, the mountains, the trees, the humans, the animals, we really are just accidents. If that were the case, how would we view the purpose of life? Well, really, if there is no God and we're all just accidents, life has no purpose. Life is really futile. The best we could say is that the purpose of life is to exist, to survive. But that really doesn't give you much reason to get up out of bed in the morning. Is it just surviving? If there is no God and if we're all just accidents, how would you view yourself? I mean, think about your own self-view. I mean, does it really give dignity to yourself to look at yourself as a gigantic accident? We're just taking up space, wasting food, destroying the environment. In reality, if there is no God, I'm no different than a mosquito or seaweed. If there is no God and we're all just accidents, how would you view other people? In reality, other people, I would look at them as a means to my survival. If I can manipulate them, eliminate them to preserve my existence, why not? People are just a means to an end. That really is life in an accidental universe. If there is no God and if we're all just accidents, how would you view right and wrong, good and evil? Well, if you're consistent, you'd have to say these are just imaginary illusions. There is no right, there is no wrong, since there's no ultimate authority to tell me what to do. You might think it's wrong to murder, I might enjoy murder, and who are you to judge? You see, in an accidental universe, people have no meaning, life has no meaning, right and wrong are mere illusions, and the ultimate purpose of life is to kill or be killed. You think about it, Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest, that ought to be encouraged and maybe helped along if this is an accidental universe. But thank God there is a God, and he has spoken, and he has told us all about the creation of the universe in Genesis chapter 1. As we're going to see, this universe and everything in it was created by God in six days. It was created by the power of his word and all for his glory. And this universe exhibits an incredible design and an intentionality that could not be there if there is not a God. This morning we're going to be discussing a topic that might initially seem interesting only to those that like science and nature, the creation of the universe. But realize that what you believe about the creation of the universe, it has enormous implications for everyday life. It forms the foundation really for everything, the purpose of life, how you view other people, right and wrong, and a million other things. If your view of creation is wrong, you're not going to know how to live rightly in this world. All this we're going to get out of Genesis chapter 1. Now, just to put Genesis chapter 1 in context, like we talked about last week, Genesis was written by Moses, the man of God, and we think it was written around the year 1400 B.C. to the people of Israel who had just left Egypt. 
You'll remember that for hundreds of years, the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt, making bread, uh, bricks for Pharaoh. But then the Lord raises up Moses. He decimates Egypt. He leads Israel out of slavery, and they head on toward the promised land. And Moses writes Genesis to reorient these slaves to life. He, again, they, they had been ignorant for hundreds of years. No Sunday school, no books, no public schools, anything like that. So how do they make sense of reality? Genesis is designed to refute the lies that they had heard in Egypt and to teach them the truth about creation and their role in creation. Now, in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, the section we're going to talk about this morning, God boldly declares, I am the creator. I am the maker of the universe. Contrary to everything you heard in Egypt, contrary to what you may have learned from Charles Darwin, I have made this universe for my glory. And really, it finds its fulfillment in functioning for my glory. And from this passage, there are four vital truths about the way in which God created the universe that I'd like you to consider with me. Four vital truths about how God created the entire universe. And we need to understand these, believe these, if we want to rightly live in the world God has made. Consider with me first the way in which God created the entire universe in six days. God created the universe in six days. Now, we won't take time to read the entire chapter now. I hope you did that on your own. But let me quickly summarize what God did on the six days of the creation week. And as I go through this, you might even draw, you know, feel free to scribble sort of a picture of what God is doing on these different days. The entire process begins on Sunday, the first day of the week, and it's here that God speaks the heavens and the earth into existence. And as you can see, the earth begins as this gigantic, formless blob of dirt and water covered in darkness with the Spirit of God hovering over it like an eagle. On this same day, God creates light. Now, again, there are no people at this time, no plants needing this light, and yet God creates this light nonetheless. And you'll notice the way in which this light is created before the sun. Now, that's important. Remember back in Egypt, they worshipped the sun. They thought all of life came from the sun, but God is saying, no, the sun is subservient to me. Actually, light comes before the sun. All that takes place on Sunday, the first day. Well, on Monday, God divides the waters. He lifts some of the waters up into the atmosphere where he creates sort of the cloud cover and, and the other water kind of congregates on the earth. And at this point, the entire earth is kind of like one gigantic ocean. Imagine it that way. That's Monday. On Tuesday, he causes dry land to appear. He sort of peels back some of the water and continents arise. And probably at this point, one gigantic continent. So part of the earth is covered with water, part of the earth covered with dry land. And also on Tuesday, he caused plants to spring up, just trees and grasses and vegetation. They spontaneously appear, and you'll notice they appear in an already mature form. That'll be important for later on. All of that done on the third day. On Wednesday, the fourth day, he makes the heavenly bodies. And by that, that would include the moon, the stars, the planets. God just casts these into the sky like we might cast pearls. And as you can see, they're not there to be worshipped or consulted, but to govern time. Look at what he says. They're for signs and seasons and days and years. On Thursday, the fifth day, God creates the water creatures and the birds. He simply spoke, and fish, and dolphins, and sharks, and penguins, and hawks, and pigeons appeared. And again, they're fully mature. He didn't make these eggs that just sort of cracked open. Mature animals already there. And God instructs them to reproduce and populate after their kind. On Friday, God makes the rest of the animals, domesticated animals, livestock, wild animals. 
both great and small, makes them on the sixth day. And on the sixth day, he also creates the crown of his creation. Look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As you can see, unique from the rest of creation, we are made in the image of God. We reflect something of the spiritual nature of God. We're to be God's representatives on this planet, ruling in God's place. And you look at it, the rest of creation is designed to serve us, who in turn are designed to serve God. Well, that's the six days of creation week. And what does God do on the seventh day? Look at Genesis 2.1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. We'll talk more in a future sermon on the Sabbath day and why God rested. It was not because he was tired. But this is, in a nutshell, is the process that God went through to create the universe and all that's in it. In six days, bringing order out of chaos, creating most of which that exists today in an already mature form. Now, a question you probably have as we walked our way through this is, were these days literal 24-hour days? This is, especially since the advent of Darwinian evolution, this is a question everybody wants to talk about. Are these days 24-hour periods of time, or might it be poetic language for long ages? You know, this is a view out there held by many Christians that say day one was maybe a billion years, day two a billion years, day three a billion years, and so forth. Now, since that is such a massive question, I'm not going to deal with that now. Instead, I'm going to devote one and probably two sermons to it. So come, come back next week and the week after that. I actually think the age of the earth and how you interpret the Bible in light of that is pretty important. Uh, but come back uh, for that next week and the week after that. But the big truth I want you to notice here is the way in which God creates the entire universe in six days. Quickly, a second truth about the creation of the universe from this passage. Consider how God created the universe with great design and order. Very clearly, he creates this universe with great design and order. Now, as we read this passage, there's a certain method to what God is doing. He doesn't create everything in all fell, one, one fell swoop, though he could have. You know, that's one of the things you need to think about when pondering the works of God. How God could have done things differently, and yet he intentionally did not do things differently. And he could have created this universe, boom, everything but instead he walked through it in six days. Moreover, it's not random or happenstance. There's a form, there's an intentionality. He creates these different domains and then he fills these different domains. Now, throughout Genesis 1, you'll see the word repeated separated. Separated. For example, in 1.4 it says this, God saw the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, it's interesting that this emphasis on separation and separateness, it continues throughout Scripture. The people of Israel, they were to be separate from the Gentiles. They were not to intermarry with them. In the Mosaic Law, you had clean and unclean animals, and really clean and unclean a whole bunch of stuff, and they're to be kept distinct and separate. In the New Testament, the church is to be distinct from the world, and the believers are not to intermarry with non-Christians. And really, throughout the flow of all of redemptive history, the kingdom of God is to be separate from and distinct from the kingdom of darkness. There's definitely this emphasis on separate categories that are not designed to intermingle. 
Because of that, we should not be surprised today that Satan is doing everything that he can to blur and blend together what God has designed to stay separate. We really see this everywhere. You think about the confusion regarding gender these days. You know, male and female, they were designed to be distinct. Yes, complementary, but distinct genders. What's our world doing? It's trying to blend everything and blur everything together. You think about creation and creator. In God's worldview, they're distinct, they're different. Our world today is trying to blend everything together and kind of talk about creation as a God. In God's plan, church, state, family, they're to be distinct, occupying distinct realms. Again, in our world, Satan seems to be blurring all of that and giving everything over to the government. We talk about different religions, with Christianity being the only way to the Father. What is Satan trying to do? He's trying to blur it all together into kind of one gigantic religion. Realize this is part of God's creation design. There are certain distinct categories that are designed to stay separate, but Satan wants to blur it and blend it all together. Another thing you'll notice in this account, the way in which God creates things according to their kinds. This phrase comes up again and again. Plants are to reproduce according to their kinds. Animals reproduce according to their kinds. Again, notice the intentionality, the planning here. Look at verse 14, the way in which lights are to function. Again, not haphazard. He said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. I think it's fascinating that for thousands of years, people have been looking to the stars to govern time. You know, if you know anything about Stonehenge, apparently Stonehenge is somehow aligned with the stars and and correlates with the seasons. Same thing I've heard with the pyramids. How did they figure that out so long ago had God not told us that these are how these things are to function? Now, I want to show you something else fascinating here. Has anybody ever shown you the way in which days one through three create these different domains, and then days four through six, they fill these domains in the same order? Do you know what I mean? Let me walk through this, and perhaps this will make sense. Bring up that chart, if you would. What's created on day one? On day one, we got the light and darkness. That's a domain, kind of an area that he's going to fill. What does he create on day two? The oceans and the skies. How about day three? The dry land and plants. Those are all different sort of domains of creation. Now watch this. On days four through six, those domains are filled in the same order. So again, day one, what's created? That the light and the darkness that's filled with stars and planets. Day two, oceans and skies are created. On day five, fish and birds fill that. Day three, dry land and plants are created, and they're filled then with animals and humans. Isn't that fascinating? All this is demonstrating the order, the design, the intentionality that God embedded in creation. God is not haphazard or aimless. He's systematically bringing order out of chaos. To use the words of 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, this truth that God is a God of order, intentionality, design, that contains a great lesson for us. And this is a lesson we we need to learn. I mean, in our flesh, we are so prone to laziness, uh, so prone to live life as if we're just a giant junk drawer with all these sort of random things thrown in there. Instead, as those made in the image of God, it ought to be our goal to live our lives with intentionality, planning, setting goals, evaluating those goals, adjusting so as to increase efficiency. Think of Solomon's counsel in Proverbs 6.6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. 
Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. And what's the lesson that Solomon draws out from that? That's the way in which you want to live. You know, think about your own life. Do you live like an ant, or is your life more like a junk drawer full of random bits and pieces with no order at all? Do you plan ahead? Do you brainstorm? Do you think through how I can most wisely use my time and resources? Do you set goals, evaluate those goals, adjust your goals to maximize efficiency? Or does your life reflect more the random, haphazard aimlessness of something like the process of evolution? We need to apply the same sort of thinking to our local church and our ministries here. When it comes to planning for the future, putting together our budget, allocating resources, we should think through, is this ministry a good use of time and money? Is this, good, is this ministry a helpful way to reach people with the gospel? There should be intentionality, evaluation, planning there. And that should be there not just to maximize the use of resources, but to reflect the character of our intentional God who planned out creation. Quickly, a third truth about the way in which God created the universe. Consider that God created the universe good. Very clearly, God created the universe good. Now, you probably noticed this as we read through verses 1 through 19, but after each day, what does he say? God saw what he had made, and it was good. In fact, seven times, and what is seven in the Bible? It's the number of perfection. Seven times God says it is good, useful, helpful, beneficial, beautiful. He sort of summarizes it all in verse 31, if you look there. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now, something I'm not going to pursue very far for now, but one of the things that we learn from this is the way in which something is better than nothing. All right, that might seem like the most obvious thought in the world to you, but let me explain why it's important. Something is better than nothing. And I think that's indicated in the fact that God made this universe and he made it good. Now, what am I responding to there? Well, increasingly today you hear people talk as if it would be much, much better if we just did not exist. You've got these wild environmentalists who look at humans as sort of a cancer on creation, and that if we just did not exist, it would, it would be just happy, bubbly rainbows and unicorns and everything, and humans are just a bad idea. You hear people talk that way? I've encountered professing Christians who talk this way. They look at all the evil and the suffering in the world, the bloodshed and the, the war and the destruction, and they start thinking, you know, maybe it would have been better if God hadn't let this happen. Maybe God made a mistake in letting all of this come to pass. Maybe you've thought that. Let us never try to be wiser than God. God created this universe and he made it good, indicating that it's certainly better that there's something than nothing. And what's more, had God not created this universe, there would not be this beautiful canvas upon which Jesus could accomplish his work of redemption. Well, thinking about the present creation, there's no doubt that today it's filled with evil, bloodshed, sin. We're not denying that. Since Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered the world and corrupted everything. This is why there are earthquakes and cancer, why mosquitoes bite, why there's laziness and betrayal and dictators and pandemics. It's all due to the evil Adam introduced into our world. But again, as you can see, that's not the way that it was at the beginning. In the beginning, this universe was good both morally and physically. Things were the way they were supposed to be. And I've discovered that that little distinction, that distinction between the way God created the universe and the way in which it was corrupted by Adam's sin, that is absolutely vital in evangelism. This is a sort of a 
truth we take for granted as Christians, but a lot of non-Christians don't get it. They look at this world, they see the death, the pain, the, the suffering, tsunamis and earthquakes, and they say, you want to tell me a good God made the world that way? What they're not getting is that actually God didn't make the world that way. That's there because of Adam's sin. Now, certainly the question of the problem of evil and whatnot is far more developed than that, and there's more that you'll, that you'll have to say. But that little distinction is vital, distinguishing the original good creation from the present corrupted creation. Now, this goodness with which God created everything, realize that is a reflection of the good character of God himself. Since God is good, he can only do what is good. And when he makes this world, that's why it's good. It's reflecting his own character. And I've come to believe that this is one of the most important truths for those of us who are Christians to learn in sort of an experiential way. An experiential way. What do I mean by that? No Christian is going to deny that the Bible teaches that God is good. That's everywhere. It's said a zillion times God is good. And yet, truth be told, there are many times when we sort of question it in a practical sense. Is God really good? Does he have my best interests in mind? I know I've told you this story before, but I was raised in a Christian home, and I came to trust Jesus at a young age. But growing up, there were times that I sort of doubted the goodness of God's commands in my life. You know, I saw my unbelieving friends just sort of living it up, having a great time, and I, truth be told, envied them. You know, Psalm 73, I envied the wicked. And I thought, you know, if God hadn't given me these prohibitions, I would be go living it up, having a great time, having a wonderful time, just, you know, doing what they were doing. What was going on there, I had lost sight of the fact that God commands what he commands because he is good, and he has my best interests in mind. And the reason why he has forbidden, say, premarital intercourse, or pornography use, or drunkenness, or drug abuse, whatever, is because he's trying to protect me from things that would destroy me. I kind of lost sight of that, and because of that, envied the wicked. So brothers and sisters, remind yourself on a regular basis of the goodness of God in an experiential way. Again, we all know the Bible teaches this, but do you really believe this deep down? That God has ordered the affairs of your life and given you the commands that he has, and given you the family members he has, because he is a good God and he's giving you what is best. Let us believe that. God created this universe good, and that goodness is a reflection of his very character. Let me give you a final truth about the creation of the universe from Genesis 1. Consider finally how God created the universe out of nothing by the power of his word. How God created the universe out of nothing by the power of his word. Now you'll notice that 11 times in this chapter, God speaks and whammo, things come into existence. It's amazing. Genesis 1.3, God said, let there be light and there was light. Genesis 1.9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together, and it was so. Now, I'd like us to meditate on this truth for a while, because this is actually a massive concept, one of the major themes running throughout the entirety of the Bible. And you might contrast it with the way that we make things. When you or I, when we're about to make something, what do we do? You know, after thinking through, okay, I want to bake a cake, I want to build a bookshelf, what do we do? We go gather our materials. If I'm going to make a cake, I get the flour and the eggs. If I'm going to build a bookshelf, I get a saw and some wood. I get the materials, and then I refashion those materials into something. Am I right? And yet, notice Genesis 1. When God creates the universe, where do you get the materials from? Where do you get the water from? Where do you get the light from? Where do you get the stars from? He didn't. He just spoke, and these things came into existence out of nothing. 
What's more, he even created the time in which these events are taking place, the space that these things are occupying. There's so much life-giving power in the Word of God that he simply says it, and things come into existence that weren't there beforehand. Listen to Genesis, uh, what John Currid said on Genesis 1-3 is helpful. He says, God shattered the darkness and formless by the mere act of speaking the words, let there be light. His awesome, crushing power was demonstrated dramatically by that command of just four words in English. God spoke and the physical came forth out of nothingness. By mere verbal fiat, the light was called to break forth into the formless, empty, and dark world. This is the big term creation ex nihilo. Big word, I realize it's Latin, we don't use a lot of Latin around here, but it's a term you're, uh, it would be beneficial to be familiar with. Creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Again, it's not like anything you, could, you or I can experience. We only make stuff out of pre-existing materials. God had no pre-existing materials when he made this universe. To use the words of Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, as we study this theme of the life-giving, powerful Word of God throughout the entirety of the Bible, what we discover is that it's almost a being in itself. It is so powerful, so forceful, that it's almost like a, a substance, something to be experienced, not just sounds we make. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says this, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Again, contrast that with our words. Do our words call things into existence? No, our words are really mostly just sounds. They can be exaggerated, they can be deceptive, they can be inaccurate, they definitely don't create things out of thin air. But God has the ability to cause things to come into being simply by speaking the reality. It's the word of God. And really, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you have experienced this life-giving word in several ways. It was this life-giving word that God spoke that led to you being born again. You know, you may have been sitting there in a church service, may have been sitting there in Sunday school, may have been, you know, talking to your parents or something like that. You start hearing the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And all of a sudden, the strangest things start going on inside of you. All of a sudden, Jesus goes from being boring and dull and disinteresting to all of a sudden the hope and joy of your soul. What's going on there is God using his word to give your soul life. Listen to how becoming a Christian is described in 2 Corinthians 4.6. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's an allusion to Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to become a Christian. The same life-giving word that creates the universe speaks into your soul, and you believe. What's more, this continues to go on throughout the entirety of the Christian life. The change agent in growing and changing and becoming more like God's Son is this same powerful word. How are we renewed? How are we conformed more and more to the image of God's Son? How do we solve our problems, defeat our bad habits, develop godly habits? How do we solve problems with our spouses when we're not getting along? How do we fight these life-dominating, besetting sins? God takes his life-giving, life-transforming word and speaks it into you, and you change. Like Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
Here's something really amazing I want you to think about. This Bible that you got, hopefully, sitting on your lap right now, that Bible is made of the very same substance as the words that created the universe in Genesis 1. I mean, you get that, that will blow your mind. And you will want to read the Bible more than watch Netflix. This Bible, the words in this Bible, properly understood, properly applied to your life, that has the same power as the words of Genesis 1 that created the universe. And that's why it can bring order out of the chaos of your life. Why, why it can help you solve your problems. Why it can help your family grow and change. It's got the same power. Think about what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is not just nice religious thoughts from the apostles. It's the very breath of God, what scripture says God says, and that's why it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Maybe think on that tomorrow morning before you read your Bible. I'm about to hear from God his life-giving, life-changing word, the very same word that created this universe. If you can get that in your brain, you will read the Bible entirely differently. It won't just be the sort of academic crossword puzzle type thing that you fill out because you have to. It's engaging with God and hearing from God speak into your life. And here's one of the really crazy things. We get to participate in God's life-giving, life-transforming work by speaking this word to others. I mean, this honestly is probably the highest privilege a human can have. We get to participate in God's life-giving, life-transforming work when we speak God's words to others. Now, what do I mean by that? I am certainly not talking about magic spells or by you know, saying things and all of a sudden things come into existence. You know, I'm not talking about all that prosperity gospel nonsense where if you just say the right phrases, all of a sudden you'll find cash in your wallet. That, that's not at all what I'm talking about. That's superstitious nonsense and mumbo-jumbo. But what are we doing when we speak the gospel to others? When you lovingly tell somebody, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God can work through your words to give that sinner new life. Just like God created the universe, God can create life in the soul of that person as you speak the gospel to them. Same thing with your brothers and sisters. When a struggling brother, struggling sister comes to you and they share their struggles, and you help them connect their problems with the appropriate passages of Scripture, when you say comfort them, rebuke them, guide them, counsel them, what are you doing? Again, God is speaking through your words, and God can use that to totally change their lives. And again, what a, what a privilege that is. I, I almost shudder to think I get to do that virtually every single day. Praise God. Listen to what Pastor Hank Seibel writes in one of the best books I've read in probably a decade. He writes this, God's word is performative speech. Just as God first created something out of nothing by speaking words, so he continues to create new realities by the force of his sheer word. When you say, the Lord bless you and keep you, you are not expressing an empty wish or fervent prayer. All the power of God's own name and word enacts that blessing by which he bestows his enlivening power. God's word always does what it says. When you comfort dying believers with the promises of God who raises the dead, they find hope and peace in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. When you employ scripture to sanctify and cleanse a woman who has been abused and defiled by another's sin, she is cleansed, renewed, and purified with a holiness not her own, wrapped in the purity and sanctity of Jesus himself. That's the power of God's word for you. Never just static information. The Bible is the tool and instrument of the Holy Spirit to do what it says, to accomplish what it speaks of, to deliver what it promises. 
No wonder, then, that Scripture is at the center of local church ministry. God's Word delivers the goods. God did not lie when he said in Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And again, you and I get to participate in that incredible privilege as we speak God's word to others. One more thought on all of this. Earlier I said that the word of God is so powerful, so forceful, that it's almost a being in itself. Well, there is a sense in which that's literally true. There is a literal person who is the Word of God, and that is our Lord Jesus. Turn to John 1, if you would. We read this earlier, so maybe you got a bookmark there. But look at John 1. John 1, 1 says this. In the beginning, now does that sound familiar? It's the same words from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was light, life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This Word that John is talking about is clearly Jesus. He was there in the beginning. He was actually the tool that the Father used to create everything. And this word takes on flesh and walks among us. That's why it says in verse 12, pardon me, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, whom you have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the one whose birth we celebrate every Christmas, he was there in the beginning with God. He actually is God of very God. So when we read Genesis 1, we should read Jesus as active there. Yes, his name's not mentioned, but think about it. Jesus is the one separating the light from darkness. He's the one forming the unformed earth. He's the one stretching out the sky. He's the one causing dry land to appear. He's the one who made all these plants and animals and fish and creeping things and all people. That's Jesus. And that same Jesus who was creating the universe at the beginning for us and our salvation came down to earth, and he walked on this planet that he had made. I mean, that's one of the most mind-boggling things. He made this planet, and then he comes and walks on this planet for us and our salvation. He grows up, and he experiences all of the ordinary phases of human development. Jesus is an infant. He's a toddler, boy, young man, adult man. Goes through all the typical experiences, but then he becomes a wandering teacher. And for three-some years, he goes around teaching, performing miracles, calling out disciples, healing the sick, casting out demons. And then what does this same word made flesh do for us? He goes to the cross, and he dies for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on, the, hanged on a tree. Now think about this again. This is the creator. The creator who made trees allows himself to be nailed to a tree. The creator who made iron ore allows iron nails to be driven through his hands and his feet. The creator who made humans allows humans to scourge him and to whip him nearly to death. And then the creator who made this planet, he allows that cross to be raised up and dropped into a hole in the very planet he made. And why did he do that? He did that for us and our salvation so that we might be rescued from the wrath our sins deserve. If you're here today and you are not a 
Christian, you've not yet committed yourself, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus. We are delighted you're here. Thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. But if you are not a Christian, I hope you've heard what God is saying to you from Genesis 1. This world is not a cosmic accident. Your life has purpose. You were made by a good God to love others and to glorify God. And yet we all realize that we don't love God and serve God as we should. If you're honest, you know we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We do things every day that we know we should not do. We defy our Creator and try to live without any regard to how God designed life to be lived. And God, the Creator of our universe, He would have been totally righteous to just obliterate us all for our rebellion if He wanted to. And yet here's the good news, the wonderful news. The the reason why Jesus came was to fix that mess, to resolve that dilemma, to reconcile rebellious creatures to their Creator. And I say it again, on the cross, Jesus, the Word made flesh, He became sin for us. He absorbed God's judgment in our place. He took all of the wrath, all of the punishment that I deserved on into eternity, and He suffered it in my place as He hung on the cross. God the Father raised Him back from the dead three days later, and now He is offering to you total forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life, the sure and certain hope of heaven right now if you'll but turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, I offer to you this morning the only way to be reconciled to your Creator. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. And Jesus is offering to you eternal life if you'll come to Him today. So turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Stop running from God. Stop trying to live your own way. Rely on Jesus' death and resurrection and be made right with God. Do that today and you will experience eternal life. To use the words of John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, talking about Jesus, the word made flesh, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So turn to Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you or pray for you, please talk to me after the service today. I'll be under the overhang to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus, the word made flesh, and today be made right with your Creator. Well, to close up our time this morning, I bring you back to that John Lennon song, the sort of great anthem of practical atheism. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell below us. Imagine there's no religion. Imagine all the people living in peace. Nice thought, but it's not true. If there's no heaven above, no hell below, if there's no God, no religion, that would not result in a world of rainbows and unicorns, peace and harmony. Honestly, that would turn our world more into the Lord of the Flies than John Lennon's imagine. We'd live in a world of pointless nihilism, of savage brutality, of kill or be killed. We ought to encourage survival of the fittest if there is no God. And honestly, we're seeing that sort of thing take place in our world today, filled with people who were educated in Darwinian evolution for 12 years. But praise God, there is a God who is a creator, and he has created our universe. Since he is our creator, your life, my life, has meaning and purpose. Since there is a creator, life is not an accident, just the accidental collision of stardust. No, other people are fellow humans made in the image of God that we are to love and serve and appoint to Jesus. And since there is a creator, there is a heaven, there is a hell, and Jesus, the word made flesh, is the only way to the Father's house. 
Praise God, we are not the random result of an accidental collision of molecules. Praise God, we are the intentional, intelligent design of a loving, good, perfect God who created everything through his all-powerful word. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, thank you so much for making us. Lord, we don't deserve to exist, especially after our sin. We deserve only your wrath, but you are so incredibly merciful. You made us, and you made us in your image. And then even after we sin, you've given us this plan of redemption, this hope of salvation. Thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, use that to transform us. Use that to fill us with joy, gratitude, delight. From there, use that to move us to love our neighbor, to do what we can, to bless our world. We do pray for any in this congregation, any who hearing my voice right now who have not yet been born again, please take your word right now and give them life. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.